Hello, I'm Vivian Berkovich. Today is Yom HaShoah, Holocaust Remembrance Day in Israel. At 10 o'clock this morning, a siren wailed throughout the country for two minutes. Everything stopped. We stood, still, and remembered. Yesterday evening, at sundown, the whole nation paused. Small ceremonies were held in parks and at schools. Key national leaders and dignitaries attended a state ceremony in Jerusalem. It is grand and, of course, very somber. Every year, I ask, how is it possible to even begin to process, never mind commemorate, this singular crime against humanity? Yet, we continue to try. This is the State of Tel Aviv and Beyond, the podcast that brings you the straight-up, unfiltered story. What's really going down in Israel? Politics, economics, religion and state, lots of conflict. I'm your host, Vivian Berkovich, former Canadian ambassador to Israel. We're on the street with the folks who live here and have skin in the game. Yalla, let's dive in. My father was a Holocaust survivor. He was born in Bucharest in 1928 and his younger brother in 1932. Throughout the war years, they were in Romania. After a series of particularly brutal pogroms in January 1941, his family made its way to Galaks, a port city on the Black Sea. My step-grandfather was a Stalinist of sorts, and his goal was to take his new family, my grandmother and her two young sons, into the promised Soviet region of Birobidzhan, where Stalin thought all Jews should relocate. It also happened to be in the remote northeast reaches of the massive Soviet empire, close to the border with China, far from anything that mattered, like Moscow or St. Petersburg. But it was safe. My father's family, as it turned out, never did cross the Black Sea, something that he considered to be one of his luckier life moments. Like so many Eastern Europeans, he was a staunch anti-communist. When he survived the war and the Nazis were gone, replaced by the Soviets, like millions of Europeans again, he thought, I'd better get out while I can. But that's a whole other story. On this Yom HaShoah, for so many reasons, I decided to speak with Dr. Gali Mir Tibon and delve into certain aspects of the Holocaust in Romania. Like me, Gali is the daughter of a survivor her mother was also born in Romania, in a small village in the Transylvania region. I had met Gali a year or two ago, and we discussed at the time this common history. And I understood, intuitively, that she was somewhat possessed, as am I, with a need to understand, to dig, to somehow try to make sense of this impossibly tragic and triumphant legacy that we share. We are children of survivors. Later in life, Gali left her first career as a teacher and school principal and returned to university to research details of the Holocaust in Romania, with a particular focus on the experience of her mother's family. Her PhD thesis has been rewritten as a historical novel, which she hopes to publish soon. Children of survivors, it is now quite well understood, absorb the psychological trauma of their parents deeply. In some cases, the second-generation offspring 
exhibit more acute psychological symptoms than their parents did. That, too, is a topic for another day, the transference of trauma through the generations. I spoke with Gali for several hours last week in her Tel Aviv home. Occasionally, you may hear some loud chomping in the background. That's the dog who had just come home from a few days in daycare, and he was very happy and excited. Otherwise, it's just me and Gali. In 1939, approximately 750,000 Jews lived in Romania. Their wartime experience was very different from what transpired elsewhere in Eastern Europe. What at the outset of the war was seen as a curse, that the Romanian leader, Ion Antonescu, was allied with Nazi Germany, actually became a blessing that saved untold numbers of Jews, including of course, my father and Gully's mother. Romania had its own homegrown anti-Semitic fascist movement, the Iron Guard, which more than satisfied the Nazis with its zeal in persecuting Jews. For this reason, the Germans did not control Romania at the street level, as they did in so much of Europe. They did, however, take over key infrastructure and industries. For the most part, the Germans let the locals terrorize and murder the Jews on their own. And it is precisely because of this autonomy in Romania that so many Jews survived, about half. The execution of the final solution in Romania was less crisply managed than in other countries where the Germans ran things down to the finest detail. The Romanians, they were less disciplined, a little sloppy, but no less anti-Semitic. Thanks for tuning in to the State of Tel Aviv and Beyond podcast. If you enjoy our work, please rate us. Review us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, our Substack page, which is stateoftelaviv.com. That's stateoftelaviv, all one word, dot com. Whatever works. Your thumbs up makes a huge difference. For real. Thank you so much for your support. Now, back to the podcast. Good afternoon. So lovely to see you and to have the opportunity to speak with you. Gali Mirtibon, thank you for joining State of Tel Aviv. Thank you, Vivian. It's so nice that we meet you again. Tell us a bit about yourself, where you were born, your background. I'm a writer and a historian. I was born in a kibbutz, born and raised in a kibbutz near Rehovot, Mutachido. That's a very important thing in my biography and in my character. In my kibbutz, there were many Holocaust survivors. It was there all the time. My mom was a Holocaust survivor. I remember I would go and ask her every Holocaust Memorial Day what happened to her in the Holocaust. She would tell me, but it didn't combine well before they taught us in school. Because in my mom's Holocaust, there were no Germans. And my mom would say to me, the Jews there were so mean. They were so mean. And you know what, I, I, I rejected it, but I don't blame myself now because who says such a thing to an eight years old? The Jews were so mean. I was raised in a kibbutz in the state of Israel. I felt so loved and so safe. Yeah. How was I supposed to understand my mom? 
I couldn't understand her. It took me many years. I was already a school principal, and I already did a lot of things in my life when I decided to do another MA and go and check what happened to women and girls in the Holocaust of Bukovina. Before we get too far into that, I want to ask you first, what was your mother's name? My mother's name was Rela, and it was, when you asked that, I, I really go back to what I felt about it, because all the other kids, they had parents who had Israeli names. And suddenly there is my mom with such a diaspora name, Galuti. It was a source of shame. I didn't understand that for my mom to come at the age of 13 to Israel, her parents died in the Holocaust in, in the camp, and she's coming alone, an orphan, and she knew German and Romanian and Yiddish, and all that was, didn't count. She had to start over. And at the age of 30, she went to, to study, and she went to college, and she became a teacher. Why didn't I see all that? Why didn't I appreciate all that? I was kind of shy about it, you know, that my mom is not a real sabre. She's not an Israeli. So her name was Rela. Yeah, that was her name. Where was, when was she born? What year? She was born in Bukovina, Romania. And about the year, it's a, it's a story. Because she was, okay, she was born in 1931. But all her life, and also on her passport, and on her Israeli certificate, identi identification certificate, it was written 1932. Okay, you would say it's a year. We, we always celebrate and renew 32. In 2003, we went with her to a roots tour in Bukovina, Romania. And we also went to take a birth certificate at the municipality of Vatradorne. And then she received it and she holds it, and it says 1931, and she started shaking. She was really shaken. And what happened is that in order to be included in the orphaned, orphans train, leaving the ghettos of Transnistria back to Romania in March 1944, that was a rescue train that took only children under 12. So she had to lie about her age. And she never went back from that lie because, in a way, she was afraid that if someone will, be, will know the truth, she will be back to the ghetto. So she kept this secret so firmly. Secrets and silence and lists. There were so many lists and numbers. Survival turned on being on the correct list, but having no idea which one it was. Germans were obsessed with lists of everything. I recall my own father, when I was a young adult, enraged that I had decided to study for one year of university in Israel. I came here to give you a clean slate, he thundered. Now you will be on a list. Everyone will know forever that you are a Jew. These deeply sublimated fears were fierce when triggered, but it was impossible to know or understand how to avoid 
such rages. Gali's mother, too, was haunted by records and lists, as she recounts in the following segment. For the moment, though, we return to October 1941, when her mother's family was taken by train and arrived in Mopilev, where they found their way to the ghetto. Not a single ghetto was established. What happened was that in every town, every city, there was a Jewish neighborhood. Most of the time an old neighborhood, a more poor neighborhood. And the Jews left the neighborhood and went to other neighborhoods. That happened from the mid 1930s and on. The first thing Hitler did was to put the Jews back in their proper place, where in the old Jewish neighborhood, which was now called a ghetto, not in the Mogilev region, it was not called a ghetto, but in Poland it was called a ghetto, but it was just the same. We squeeze all the Jews to the old neighborhood, to the poor neighborhood of the Jews, and later on, they would also surround it with barbed wire or stone fence. Or, it depends. In every place, it, it was different. But the ghettos were not established. They were there forever. It's just that the Jews left them, and now they were forced to be put in those ghettos again. And Mogilev was one of those ghettos. Yes. And that is where your family ended up. My family arrived at Mogilev, and in order to stay in Mogilev, not to be deported to the snow, to the cold, to the wind, and we must remember that the autumn of 1941 was the coldest winter we had in Europe until 2011. Wow. It was really, it was 30 below zero. If you add the wind factor, that's even worse. Um, so just to be deported out, out of the city of Mogilev and look for another place and then come to the Shargaro town or the Slidi town and try to find a place to stay. The Romanian didn't prepare a place or food or anything. They just pushed the Jews to Transnistria and said, this is it. The Romanian didn't plan to have the Jews stay in Transnistria. Transnistria is very narrow, and it's between two rivers. One is the Nistru, the Daniester, the other is the Bug. Beyond the Bug, to the east, that was where the Germans ruled. And there were the Einsatzgruppen. We know their role. Their role was to murder the Jews in big pits. Okay, that was what we called Holocaust by bullets. So the Romanian plan, well, plan for Romanians, too big. The Romanians' idea was to push the, the Jews from Bukovina, Bessarabia, Dorohoi into Transnistria, and from Transnistria to push them to the Einsatzgruppen beyond the book. How? There was a surprise. The thing was that since it was a very harsh autumn and winter, the land, the soil, froze. They couldn't bury the corpse. They didn't know what to do. They were very afraid of plagues. They were afraid that they, it will hurt them. They were scared. Now, what do you do with all this? In, the Germans were very angry with the Romanians because the Romanians would kill the Jews on the convoy 
and then just kick them to a ditch or somewhere and, and would never bury them or something. And they got so angry, said, oh, all the diseases are going to come eventually to us. That's how the Romanian got stuck with about nearly 200,000 Jews in Transnistria. It was not planned. And now the Jews had to find a place to stay. My mother's family, they arrived in Mogilev. How do you stay? Who would let you stay? You needed to have a job. The men had to have a job or that you brought enough money with you to pay the locals to give you a room, to give you a place to stay, etc. My mother's family didn't have that money. Soon the Romanian understood that they have a lot of human resources to use. And whatever they needed, if it was to plow the snow or to build roads or bridges, on forced laborers, they would take the Jews, and that's what the Jews did in Transnistria for two and a half years. Only those who had money could pay someone else to go and work for them. In some of the places, like the Bug camps, where the Germans were, they killed all the workers at the end of the work. They finished the road or the bridge or whatever was needed, and they just shot them. The Romanians were less harsh in this perspective, but they didn't give them any means to do the work, like the torf mines, where you had to, to dig out the torf. They did it with bare hands. So after a few days, they were all sick and their hands were bleeding. So many died. I'm 61 years old, and for some reason, Hearing Gali speak about this, the workers' hands, helped me to see something so obvious, something I had wondered about all my life. My father had been a teenager in forced labor in Romania. He and his family were in a Black Sea port town called Galatz for much of the war, and from age 13, he was conscripted as a forced laborer for the Germans for four years. He would show up at 6 a.m. and board an open lorry and be taken to various sites. But most of the time, he worked at a German airstrip that supplied the Eastern Front. It was constantly being bombed by the Soviet army, and the Jews were made to clear out the rubble, by hand, with no equipment, not even gloves. I remember my father telling me that. Yet, I hadn't thought of how sore and cut and bloody and bruised his hands must have been. It just didn't occur to me. And suddenly, it made sense why all his life he had been unfailingly fastidious about maintaining his hands, perfectly manicured. I remember watching him as a little girl, his ritual, quietly. We never spoke about it, but I knew. I knew there was more to it. I also recall asking him, as a teenager, if he remembered one particularly vicious pogrom that took place in Bucharest in January 1941. 2,000 Jews were rounded up randomly, murdered, hung from large hooks meant for cow carcasses, and their bodies stamped kosher meat. A look of horror on his face when I asked. 
I was terrified. Do I remember? He asked me after a long silence. Nothing further was said. There was nothing to say. Shortly after that, his family fled Bucharest. In late June and early July 1941, there was another notorious pogrom, this one in the city of Yacht. Again, Jews were rounded up, marched through the city streets. Locals spat at them, threw garbage, jeered, humiliated them. They were held in police stations, and several thousand unfortunates were taken and stuffed into sealed rail cars. The heat was stifling. Any air holes in the closed cars were plugged by the fascists, ensuring maximum suffering. Most of those locked inside suffocated to death, but many Jews remained captive in the police stations until a small miracle that would only happen in Romania occurred. It was about 4,000 Jews into the trains, and many were executed in the process, but many were still left at the stations. Now it came lunchtime, and the Romanians' guards went to lunch. Nobody stayed to guard them. Many of the Jews just walked home, just walked home, and nothing happened to them. Nobody went to look for them. Nobody went after the, the Yash Jews after the pogr this pogrom of a few days. Those who stayed at the station of the police, they were murdered. But those who left, nobody chased them. So you see how different this Romanian story is. So, In the suburban Toronto neighborhood where I lived as a young child, there were many survivor families. We kids knew the names of the camps and had a pretty good idea as to what went on there. Even though so many parents tried to hide their painful pasts, it was in the air. We overheard things. We talked. I had one girlfriend whose parents survived, she told me one day at the local pool, when we were eight years old, because they worked in Canada. Being Canadian, of course, I was a little confused. So she explained that Canada was the best job in Auschwitz. It was the warehouse where all the belongings taken from murdered Jews were sorted and stored. Her parents worked indoors and had access to food pilfered from the pockets of coats and clothing. They were lucky, she told me. So I often wondered. I was confused. There were no camps in my father's story. And the dominant Holocaust narrative and knowledge in those days was the story of the Jews of Poland, Ukraine, and the camps. But my father, he wasn't in a camp. He was with his family throughout the war. They all survived. When I asked him if he wore the Star of David, forced upon Jews in most of Europe, he refused to answer me. I was confused. So I read everything I could get my hands on, voraciously. But not until my chat last week with Gali Mir Tibon did I learn of this astonishing turn of fate. At the Vonsi Conference, held in a lakeside mansion just outside of Berlin in January 1942, where Adolf Eichmann and other high-ranking Nazis met to sort out the logistics of the so-called final solution, which was really a euphemism for the murder of every last Jew in Europe. 
the fate of Romanian Jews was also determined at Vansi. They were to be transported by cattle car to a murder facility called Belgia in Poland. The plan at the Vansi conference was that the Romanian Jews will be sent from all Romanian Jews will be sent in the summer of 1942 to Belzec. It was the same as Auschwitz or Treblinka, just a different method. Until fate intervened. In the form of Yulio Manu, the leader of the Romanian National Peasants Party. An unlikely savior. So, Yulio Manel was not what you would call a Jew lover, but he was definitely against the murder of the Jews. He was in opposition. And he was a nationalist. So now when Antonesco was hesitant to send the Jews of Romania, Yulio Manel comes to talk to him. And he says, okay, the Germans want the Jews, fine, you can send the Jews. But first, there is something we, the Romanians, want. The argument was actually not belong to Julio Manel. The argument belonged to Wilhelm Fildermann. He was the leader, the non-official leader of the Jews in Romania. Nandor Gilgod was the official leader of the Judenrat of Romania, okay? The, the, the centralite was called in Romania. Mm-hmm. Like they had the Judenrat in every country that the Nazis conquered. He was a collaborator with the Romanians. Fildeman was different. He was very clever. And it turned out that he studied at school from first grade until he was 16. They were both 16 with Antonescu. Now, in Romania, they were not so soft about kids. So every week, at the end of the week, they would put a list with the names and all the, um, the mark, they, the, all, all the tests, okay, and what they got, Ani. And from the best to the lowest, and who's always on top of the list. It doesn't matter if it's gymnastic or mathematics, if it's Romanian language or ge- geography, everything. It was always Wilhelm Fildeman. He was a genius. So he went to Julio Maneo and he offered him, he said, Julio Maneo, you're going to, to Antonescu, you can meet him. I know him, I know what will work. Okay, so that was very clever and it was a collaboration of the two people. What a fantastic story. <laughs> it is. So it, so it was already now winter of 1943. At this point in the war, Antonescu was worried that he had picked the wrong horse by allying with Germany, and he was looking for a way to curry favor with the Allied powers, just in case. Sparing a few hundred thousand Jews was part of that. But Galimir Tibon says that much more began to change in Romania by 1943. Uh, Jews would testify that suddenly, instead of calling them Zidane or using their names, kicking them, hitting them. They would call them, you know, like Mr. Mrs. Okay. They would start to address them as As human beings, as human beings. And Romanians are very formal. 
So it, it, it's a sign that something is changing. And there were no more sport to the Petrora or the Skazinet starvation camps that stops in 43. And that's because there is a shift in Antonescu's approach. In her research, Gully has uncovered fantastic stories, and it is crazy that they are not more widely known. We will focus on one here, that of Siegfried Jugendorf, a Romanian Jewish man who pretty much single-handedly saved the lives of 20,000 Jews. The story of Oskar Schindler, the Nazi party member who rescued 2,000 Jews from death by drawing up his famous list, memorialized in the film Schindler's List, is so widely known. Yet Siegfried Jugendorf? I certainly drew a blank. Siegfried Jugendorf, Sami Shimon, he was born in Novokovina, and he was a very smart person, a well-to-do person. In World War I, he invented the electric fence, and they built a fence between North Bukovina to the Russian uh, forces. It didn't help, but he got decorated by the Austrian emperor. But after the war, he didn't find himself. He was lost. He tried to establish one factory and failed, and then another factory and failed. And eventually, he was sent by the Siemens company, that's a German company still today, to be their delegate in Bukovina. And he was very successful at what he did. And then the war broke. And in autumn 1941, as all the Jews were deported from Bukovina, also Jägendorf and his wife Hilda were deported to the Mogilev area in Transnistria. Their daughters were already older and they were married in the United States, so they were safe. Jägendorf, in a way, he didn't have to worry about his daughters, just him and his wife. They arrived at Mogilev area and it's total darkness. It's three o'clock, 3 p.m. It's already total darkness and there is no light until 8 a.m. and the light is so fair. You hardly weak. see it. It's very weak, that winter light. Yeah, and, and the light is so weak, you don't see anything. And the first night, they all sleep in what they call the casino. They were all squeezed there, one on top of the other, no place to, to sit, no place to, to stand, to breathe. It's a real old casino or movie hall. People don't know exactly. There are different versions. Hell, people yelling, people crying, children, women, old people. People die there from the cold. It is so freezing cold. And morning comes, and he wears a suit, and he wears a tie. He combs his hair, he takes a handkerchief, and he cleans his shoes, and his wife doesn't understand what he's doing. He says, what are you doing? And he himself not sure what he is doing. And he's, he leaves the, the premises of this casino where all the Jews are, and he walks the street of Mogilev as in, he's looking for the German headquarters. Now, there were hardly any Germans in Mogilev, there were Romanians, but the Germans did keep the infrastructure things, like the railroads, the water supply, and the power station. So he enters the German headquarters. 
the uh, the head of the German forces there can't believe his eyes. A Jew entering his headquarters. What is he doing here? And Jägendorf is doesn't want to hesitate. He starts talking immediately, and he shows his credentials from the Dresden High Engineering School and from Vienna. And he said, I'm an engineer, and I'll return the light to the region. I can fix the power station. Uh, what the German uh, headquarters would like to do is just shot these Jews and kick him out or something. But it's already for months that they don't have power. They don't have electricity in the region. And he has credentials. And he speaks German fluently. So what to do with this Jew? And they said, you know what, we let you try. Now he said, I have one condition. Would you imagine that? Not only that he's entering the headquarters, he has a condition. I'm going to choose my workers myself. Well, they have no choice. They say, okay. So he gathered all kinds of engineers and people who understand electricity, most of them from South Mukovina, people he knew and some he didn't know. And three weeks go by and the electricity is returned to the region. That's huge. Now he enters the Romanian headquarters and he tells the Romanian commander, you're going to lose the war. But what do you mean? The Jew, look how fresh this man is and how brave he is. He said, because the supplies line are too long from Romania and you need the agriculture of what can grow here on the soil of Transnistria. If you can't fix the combines, the tractors, the size, how would you have agriculture here? Well, the Romanian commander already, already knows that Tegendorf brought electricity and light to the region. So he said, okay, I can let you try to rebuild the, the uh, foundry. And Tegendorf said, I have only one condition. The workers I choose by myself. He takes 10% of the workers, he takes from the local Ukrainians, see how smart he was. 90% of them are the Jews. And they rebuild the foundry and they fix the tractors and from all over Transnistria, people climb, it's either with their size or with their combines or whatever they need for agriculture and they fix it. So those hundreds of Jews were the first who got permission to stay in the Mogilev town and not move to, into the cold and into the wild. First 100 Jews and their families, then 200 Jews with the families, then 500 Jews with the families. That's about 10,000 Jews already allowed to stay in Mogilev and they are protected. You cannot send them to the Pechora starvation camp. You cannot send them to the Skazinets starvation camps. Near them, all kinds of small factories for sugar, for belts, all kinds of ideas that Jägendorf has. And people who are working for the Jewish committee, they are cleaning the streets, they are in charge of the latrines, all kinds of jobs. That's 15,000 Jews and their families. And... 5,000 Jews who hide in attics, in cellars, 
sometimes for payment, sometimes for free, with Jews or with Ukrainians. And Yegendorf knows that they are there. So it's 20,000 Jews around Yegendorf and his foundry. Did you ever hear, heard about this Yegendorf, about this list of Jews that were survived? We all heard about the Schindler's List, right? We saw the movie, beautiful movie, beautiful book by uh, Marie Conley. But we heard about the Jägendorf list, 20,000 Jews. I never heard about another Jew who saved so many Jews or anybody, anybody. who saved so many Jews. Who is talking about the Jägendorf list? This man, what did he have? If you look at Schindler, he was a, a member of the Nazi party. He had some base to do it. He had money. He was protected himself. What did Jägendorf had? He had his credentials. He was an engineer. He was an entrepreneur. And he was very, very brave. Chutzpah. I was going to say exactly. He was chutzpah He was brave. And the other advantage that he had was that he had nothing to lose. And he had nothing, yeah. I mean, his life, of course, but if you're in that position, I'm just projecting here and I'm thinking, if he can pull this off, he can do so much good. And, and if he sits there, he can't. So he rolled the dice. Indeed. And he saved 20,000 Jews. Remarkable. And nobody hears about him. Now, when he established the foundry, that you can understand. It's also a working place for him. But to turn an eye, you know, on those Jews hiding all kinds of places, that was also risky. Now, the same Yegendorf, in May 1942, when the Romanians decided to send 3,000 Jews from the ghetto because of the typhus, typhoid plague that kills many Jews and the Romanians are afraid it's going to come to them. They demand 3,000 Jews will be sent to the Skazinets starvation camp. Who prepares the list? Who send the Jewish police to accumulate the Jews, to assemble the Jews? Who takes the Jews to the starvation camp? Yegendorf. The same Yegendorf who indeed rescued some 20,000 Jews. He also the one who arranged and sends 3,000 Jews to the starvation camp of Skazinets. How do you choose those Jews? First, those who are considered less Romanians, those from Chernovich, North Bukovina, those from Bessarabia, the, the local Ukrainian Jews that the Eisenhower didn't uh, kill at the uh, uh, Holocaust by bullets, so now we send them to Transnistria. And the poor, the sick, the elderly, this is also Yegendorf. His workers and their families and all surrounding so, of the Jewish committee are protected. Who do you send? Well, there are 55,000 Jews trans around Mogilev. Those are the people you send. And you always send the weak first. I think that anyone who survived that period had to make impossible choices and decisions. Every single person. Let me ask you something, Vivian. Why did they have to make this decision? 
the Romanians want 3,000 Jews. They have the gendarmerie. They have their uh, civil, civil administration. They have the, mili the Romanian military. They can go into the ghetto and take whoever they want. No, the Romanians didn't want to take just randomly Jews. They wanted to pick the Jews who were less able to work, the Jews who were considered less Romanian. Now, who could do that for them? The Romanians did not, could not tell a Jew from a Jew. For the Romanians, they were all Jews. Right. You look, okay, they're all Jews. But here there was a chance for the communities from South Bukovina and Dorovoy, who were considered more Romanians, to send the others. And since it was different than Poland, because in, in the Warsaw ghetto, at the end they sent them all to Treblinka and to yeah. their death. In the Lodge ghetto, in the end they sent them all to Auschwitz. Here it was different. It was a selective murder. For now. I mean, at the time, if you were there, you don't know what's next. They didn't. In fairness. They, they understood it's selective. First of all, they didn't know anything about Poland and what was going there. Right. But, and so they could not imagine a total murder. And secondly, they were very, they were very vital, very essential. Yeah. They were essential to the Romanian regime. So they understood that if they took the others, and they, the more there were chances to survive, it's already summer of 1942. More chances to survive. The more the chance was to survive, the more they were willing to send the others. So that was Egendorf. The thing was that very early they understood that they cannot save and rescue all the Jews. On this, the other premise that they understood was that they can save many Jews. That's different. They were Protestants. Yeah, you cannot save everybody, but yes, you can save many. That's different from Poland. So who am I going to save? So it's naturally that Jagendorf wanted to save the Jews from South Bukovina. At the end of the war, Gavi's mother was 13 years old. Her parents had died and she cared for her little brother by working as a seamstress for a Ukrainian woman. Eventually, she made her way to Bucharest, where her brother, who was very sick with tuberculosis, was taken in by a Jewish family with no children. Gali's mother left with other orphans for mandatory Palestine, soon to become the state of Israel. She came to Israel to an orphanage in Tel Aviv, she always said it was the best two years of her life. The whole city spoiled them. They took them to the zoo, to concert, to, to meals, to, you know, they, they had a wonderful time. But it was only until the age of 15. That was the time when orphanage were supposed to go to work. Did your mother speak about her experiences in the Holocaust, if you would ask her questions? Every Holocaust Memorial Day, I would ask her, and she would tell me. But sometimes I would refuse to listen to what she was telling me, especially because it was so harsh to hear about how Jews behaved. I wanted to hear about Jews as victims. I didn't want to hear about Jews who also did bad. 
but also in later years, let's say from 2000 and on, if people still talk, they're more willing to talk about it, how the Jewish solidarity broke down. But it was a very a well-kept secret. I'd like to close with you and ask you why it's important for us to pause every year as we do and think about what happened in Europe 80 years ago. Because it should never happen again. And should, we should have a very strong Israel and we should have a very kind Israel. These are two lessons and they are unseparate. You cannot separate one from the other. That's the lesson we have. But it's also a universal lesson that we have to stand in front of tyranny and say no more. Which is a particularly poignant comment these days in Israel. And for all of our, you know, analysis of historical figures, we stand here today and we live our own moral ambiguity and do our best. Yes, because we understand what dictatorship like Antonesco can do when there is no way to stop him legally, how dangerous it can become. That's a warning for now. Gali Mirtibon, thank you so much. I've learned so much today. You've touched me deeply, and it's a pleasure, and I know that our listeners will really benefit from what you've shared. Thank you, Vivian. Thank you so much for listening. I expect you were as riveted and gutted by Gali's brilliant storytelling as I was. Today and every day, we honor all of those who perished, all those who survived and did their best. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of the State of Tel Aviv and Beyond podcast. It would be great if you would like and subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening. Check us out at stateoftelaviv.com on Substack where you will have access to our full library of content for a limited time only. We are truly independent. We don't just say it, meaning that you will be exposed to views from across the political spectrum at stateoftelaviv.com. Me, I'm all over the place, but generally a solid centrist. State of Tel Aviv is supported by its listeners and readers. Please consider becoming a paid subscriber. Each member makes a huge difference. I'm Vivian Berkovich, signing off from deep inside the state of Tel Aviv. Until next time, stay cool, stay safe, have a great weekend.